taking a few deep breaths. I just came from a room full of children and youth. We're having a blast with Sunday's cool, learning about finding Jesus under the sea. And no, he's not out there snorkeling around somewhere. We're just looking at all the sea creatures and what God is teaching us about uh, who he is. And today they are looking at our big God as seen through whales. So you can keep praying for them. One of the other things I get to do in my life, of course, is to work with our youth. And just recently, we returned with a great group of high school students from Costa Rica. This is my fifth trip down there leading a team from our church. And we got to work with the Dennis and Kyle Leon and all of their great work in the little town of Estorios. And over the years, uh, and you're going to hear more about that trip on September 9th, but you just get to see a picture today. Over the years, I've had the honor to take somewhere over 25 to 30 different teams uh, on the mission field, everywhere from Mexico to Ecuador to uh, Antigua to Costa Rica to many more places. And several of you have traveled with me in that, and you would know, if you've been around me for very long, if I were to summarize one of my most important coaching tips, uh, it would be two words, and it would be, be flexible. And the reason is, is that I have known from all of these trips and all of these years that I can plan, I can prepare, and I'm a good, I'm a good administrator. I can organize things. I can get you from point A to point B. But I have learned that on these trips, anything can happen, and it usually does. And sometimes there are bigger things than I want to deal with, and other times they're just little things, but we have to be flexible. I've learned to expect the unexpected. And though I preach this for missions trips and even practice it uh, physically once in a while, trying to do the limbo, yeah, I fell right after that was taken, uh, uh, I am far from perfect. And as I was looking around online this week, just kind of thinking about this whole topic, I found a little short online quiz on adaptability. And so I'm going to ask a few questions, and you can just in your own mind do your own self-assessment for a moment. How flexible are you? How adaptable are you? First statement is, I enjoy going to different places, meeting new people. I adapt to new surroundings and environment rather quickly. If my friends decide to go shopping instead of a pre-planned movie, I would happily accompany them. If my pet or my child soils my favorite attire just before I leave for a party, I would not mind going to the party in the same attire. <laughs> I didn't write that question, but that's a good one to think about, isn't it? Yeah. I am positive about changes in my life and recognize the gains that might result from them. Yes, we're all wired differently in here this morning. Some of us are just those who easily go with the flow more than others. Presently, I'm reading a book called Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. He uses the expedition of Lewis and Clark as a core metaphor to push us to think about how we lead and how we live in uncharted territory. These explorers had to adapt when instead of finding the Northwest Passage, they found the Rocky Mountains. They had to get out of those canoes 
and they had to figure out how to get across the mountains. I can only imagine what that felt like after all they had gained to see that. We look at it and go, isn't that beautiful? And they're looking at it and go, isn't that the worst thing we've ever seen that we've got to go through now? So they, they had to adapt. They had had this carefully planned map. They figured out they would get to the Northwest Passage. But that map could not tell them everything. They had to adapt. They had to be flexible. They had to go forward differently. They went off the map. Today we study a passage where Jesus takes his disciples off the map. As we dig into these words, we too will be challenged to accept the uncharted territory to which Jesus calls us in the midst of this world and this culture being ready to follow him anywhere. So if you have your Bibles or you want to grab a pew Bible or you'd like to just look up here, let's read Mark 8. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If you want to become my followers, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So let's take this passage apart. And put together some action points for our lives and for our ministries. So here's the setup. If you were with us last week or if you've read the passage right before this, you will remember Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He said, you are the Messiah. And next, Mark uses, right up to that passage, it says, then, then Jesus began to teach him. It's almost as if Jesus said, thank you for that, Peter, but... Here's the next thing. And when he connected being the Messiah with suffering and death, he was saying something that really sounded ridiculous to the disciples. These were words that didn't fit together. Messiah, you're going to rescue us, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to die. And we don't even get this rise again part. It's almost as if they were going, la, 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 la. They didn't want to hear it. This is not something that they understood or or grasped. And then Mark uses the word openly. It says Jesus said this quite openly. In the Greek, that's translated as plainly. It's as if Jesus was saying, okay, I want to be crystal clear with you right now. I want to be really plain. I'm going to just put it right out there. Here it is. And of course, good old Peter heard him say that. And he said to him, uh, hey, Jesus, come over here. Now, what do we know about Peter? Peter was always the one 
who did, we love Peter. We love Peter. I mean, he gets a bad rap sometimes, but he, he really, he really, we love him because he just kind of, whatever's on his mind just comes out. He's that person that you had in your class that probably would have answered the teacher first. Teacher asked a question. Oh, 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 that's Peter. Peter was right there. He had an answer. He had some words. And of course, upon him, Jesus built the church. He took that, that liability of Peter kind of being out there and said, go get him, Peter. But Peter did a lot of putting his foot in his mouth. And here was a moment where he just jumped in and said, no, 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 Jesus, and rebuked him. Now, that's a good uh, churchy word that we probably use in very other, other parts of our society. But it mainly means refute. He refuted, said, no, not true. Not going with that, Jesus. And he said, you can almost hear him saying, you are the Messiah, Jesus. Messiahs don't suffer. They don't get rejected. They win. I don't want to hear that kind of talk. And then what does the Bible tell us Jesus did? He rebuked him. He rebuked him. And so Jesus had to deal with that. And he looks at Peter and he turns to him and the disciples for a further teachable moment. And he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, in this instance, as I, as I sat with this and as I thought about it, it's, it's probably not as if Jesus is just calling Peter Satan. He is, though, calling out Satan because he recognizes that this is the same tactic that Satan used with him in the wilderness when he said, hey, you can have all of this without any pain if you just worship me. And he says, Satan... Get out of here. Get out of my sight. I know what you're up to. You use my well-meaning friend. You're out of here. And then we see Jesus turn toward the crowd. He says, hey, uh, all the rest of you, come in here a minute. Let's talk. Let's talk with everybody. Let's have a family meeting and let's talk about all of this very plainly. Jesus had already gone off the map. The disciples had their own map in mind, and Jesus had already gone off that. And now he continues off-roading with the most definitive of discipleship plans. Now, we have the advantage of knowing the bigger picture here, don't we? We know that Jesus died on a cross. We know that he suffered for our sins. We know that he rose again, and we celebrate that. The disciples did not have that luxury. So we have to cut them some slack at this moment, and the crowds as well, because they were... They couldn't put this together, that the Messiah would do this. He'd gone off their human map, and it didn't include that. And in fact, the book of Mark has three times where Jesus plainly spoke to the disciples about his suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, and the disciples were not impressed all three times. But Jesus goes on. He takes them off the world's map and onto his own. And he calls them and he calls us to face what he was willing and did do himself. On this map, there are three steps. And he answers the question, why would we do this? He describes these steps, remember, in the terms of persecution. People in those days would have been walking down roads and seeing crosses out there. They would have been seeing people being jailed and whipped and any number of other things for their faith 
and what they were standing for. They understood what it meant to be persecuted in, a, in the midst of an evil and a brutal government. And so Jesus gives them three steps. Number one, deny yourself. Saying no to setting our mind on human things and yes to the commands of Jesus. Number two, take up your cross. And as I mentioned, they knew precisely what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross. They could die for following Jesus. Though we are not facing death, at least in this country, we know that others are. But we also must reckon with the fact that someday, even in our own generation, we too may face the end of human comfort as we know it in our Christian faith. And finally, he said, follow Jesus, follow me, saying yes to the voice, the commands of Jesus, all of them. Now, I look at this and I think three steps plainly spoken by Jesus, three steps heard by the crowd and the disciples, three steps so very challenging to live. Jesus could have ended there. He could have, in essence, been saying, hey, friends, all, what you need to do is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Three-point sermon, three-point talk. You're going to remember it. But he said there's more. He said, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel of the good news will save it. Our life is to be held loosely. In the big picture of eternity, our life is just but this small piece. And then there are no guarantees. This earthly life was never promised to us to be fair. So if the priority in our lives is to save our life, we will find ourselves disappointed over and over again. God has given us life to give not to keep. And then he said, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give and return for their life? And gain here means simply to preserve or to safeguard. A pivotal book for me in seminary was entitled The Transforming Moment by James Loder book is now out of print, and I'll have to admit it was a tough read. I mean, we were assigned that book. I thought I was never going to get through that thing. It was hard. It was a rough time. But in the middle of the abstract challenge of reading through some heady stuff, God unrolled a model for me that I have used over and over and over again. So I have greatly simplified it this morning. Not that you're not capable of understanding, but you don't have time for all that. I'm going to simplify this. And say, the first thing that we find in this fourfold knowing event is that there are two pieces to life. There is the lived world and there is the self. Our lived world are our things. The things that we have around us, our homes, our cars, our, uh, our stuff. The self, of course, is the people that are in our lives. We have those. And when we experience loss or disaster or separation 
or other kinds of loss events, we enter what is known as the void. The void is a place of floundering and searching for what is really important. And if the lived world and the self are of highest value, we climb back out of that canyon and we go back to them where sooner or later another person will leave us, disappoint us, or die. Our valued thing will break or be destroyed, sending us back into the void. And as we try to stay on the world's map, we come to dead end after dead end, falling into the void over and over, climbing back out over and over, only to go back into the void again. But James Loder moves us through his writing and through the, the work of the scripture to get over that void and to go to the Holy One, to put our faith in the Holy One, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, Jesus. We jump the canyon. We take the leap of faith. We go off the map to a place of trusting Jesus and know there is more to life than the lived world and the self in its present form. There's no profit, no profit to gaining the world. It's only through understanding the cost and walking off the map with Jesus that we take hold of true life. And finally, Jesus says, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ashamed here is kind of defined as a half-hearted, apologetic attitude that actually changes into positive disloyalty, just right moves right into that. And Jesus reminds us, as you have that attitude toward me, so will the attitude be toward you. And let's go back to what Jesus said to Peter earlier. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus was saying, your trust, your loyalty is either in the ways of humans and things or in me. There's no middle ground. So we go off the map. Jesus was calling the crowd to be off the map, to be flexible, to hold life loosely, to be adaptable to a kingdom call and not a human plan. As I sat with these words this week, I couldn't shake them. This is a very convicting passage when you start sitting with it for very long. I'm afraid that much of the worldwide church has defaulted to a priority of becoming defenders of the faith more so than livers of the faith. We are worried more about losing our rights and our privileges as Christians and changing laws than we are faithfully and humbly serving Jesus through loving all of God's creation and seeking God's justice in our world. This is not a new trend. It started with Peter in the garden when he whipped out his sword to defend Jesus. And Jesus said, we're not doing that. It's been going on for many generations. And we've too quickly tried to fight the world using its tactics, its political systems, its schemes. 
This growing defense has resulted in more and more division, a lack of civility in conversation over critical issues, personal attacks on people who believe differently, and so much more. In this, we're valuing the lived world and the self more than the Holy One. We have stayed on the world's map. We have not flexibly followed a Savior who preached and lived the gospel, taking the proactive approach rather than spending time shouting down the Roman government or his enemies. This is a call, church, to be active in our communities, in our state, in our country, in our world, with other sister churches. This is a call to be in all places and to be the ones who bring hope, bring mercy, bring justice, bring forgiveness, bring compassion, and bring light where there was once darkness. It's about being more known for what we are for than what we are against. We are better together, and we can do better. We're called to deny ourselves, our lived world. We're called to take up our cross, and it is a cross. This work will not be easy. The world wants us to go negative, and, and we are to follow Jesus. And we follow Jesus by seeking to know him, by reading his words, by studying him, by obeying him. Look at this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is the call laid on every Christian. Those who enter into discipleship enter into Jesus' death. They turn their living into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. I want to close with these words. His call leads us to death. It leads us to recognize that our physical life is temporary. His call leads us to death. We're reminded to deny ourselves, letting the sinful person die and letting Jesus make us a new creation. His call leads us to death. The death of spending too much time defending human right and wrong and getting on with the living for the Holy One and living a just and a loving life to which Christ has called us. So let's ask ourselves, I'm asking myself right now, I'm going to have to live this just like you this week. Am I, are we ready to let Jesus be Jesus? Are we ready to let him be Lord of our lives? Are we ready? And I'm ready to do that with you because we follow him together. That's the beauty of the church. We're not in this alone. And I get goosebumps saying, I'm happy to be walking with you. We have six, 700 people in this congregation. We walk together. We can do this together. We can adapt. We can be flexible. We can go off the map with Jesus. The kingdom work he has for us to bring light and life to all of his people. Let's take a few moments, take a deep breath, let Jesus speak to us as we consider this call. 
Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.